That's cool. Um, I'd love for someone to tune in right now to be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Portable Trevor hey. here. And today we have the one and only Isaac Dietz. What's up, Isaac? Hey, that's me. <laughs> that is you. And yeah. um, so Isaac is is a very special guest to me. I know I'm going to say all my guests are special, but <laughs> Isaac is extremely special because uh, it, it's kind of like without him, I wouldn't be here in Atlanta doing what I'm doing because he kickstarted this thing called the Thunderdome, uh, which is why, why Nathan Mowry's here. And so you're kind of the guy that started this whole thing. So I just yeah. want to say thank you for, before we get started. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's been cool. So uh, on, on your thumbnail, Isaac, I put that you're a pro DIY filmmaker. And yeah. I don't know if you've ever called yourself that, uh, but would you mind explaining that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love explaining the title that you gave me. <laughs> um, I could I could try and take a guess of what you meant by that, but I think it's actually pretty totally. accurate. When I read that, I was like, Oh, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> if DIY is like do it yourself, then um, it's DIY is usually attached to like do it yourself repairs and stuff like that. But like, I really think that solo filmmaking is going to be the next phase. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. as uh, like a re to replace how film is being made right now, mm -hmm. but as an alternative. So in music, you have orchestras and you have like 80 people uh, in the orchestra. And then it was like year, hundreds of years later that the folk artist came about with just the guitar. And I think that that is the next generation of film is there's, well, at least a new genre that's gonna come up. And I've been thinking this for a few years now. And I think actually this whole quarantine thing, this COVID thing is actually going to spark that. I think people are starting to realize what's possible in making films by yourself or at least with very minimal crew. Because um, mm -hmm. we're coming from the YouTube generation of all these people that had to figure out doing their own audio and figure out their own lighting and figure out their own uh, editing and stuff. And then those people go into film industry and then they go into just like directing and they're not touching cameras and stuff. And I think that that's, I think there's a place for all of it. I'm not like, people always think I'm just shooting down one of them, but I'm not, I'm just saying that us YouTuber types are getting, it's kind of boring if we're not as hands-on. And mm -hmm. I think that that's what's coming up in film soon. And so I I would like to say that I am a solo filmmaker. Uh, I have done the orchestra. I have done the big crews and I enjoy that just the same, but there's a difference between writing a song and then freestyling and jamming. And I think that both need a place. And I think film is just starting to figure that out. So. so have you always appreciated doing solo stuff more or did you start out doing um, like more orchestrated stuff where you were like, I, that's my goal. I want to be in that huge group. That's like where I want to be. And then you figured out, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, like I'm so I started, <laughs> I, yeah, I bought a camera when I was 10 years old. I bought it on layaway. Mm. Um, it was $50 is a toy camera. You plug into your VCR and it would just be me and, or a few friends or a friend. And we would make skits and I would make those from a, like 10 years old to like 16 years old. I made a DVD of the compilation of all these skits and I sold them basically like a mixtape, like sold them out of my backpack, sold a hundred of them. And then I made another one when I was 18, rented out a theater. 
it was the same idea. And so I was doing solo filmmaking for the first decade of doing film for me. And then I was reading all these books and this is how filmmakers do it. This is what Spielberg's doing because he was the name director uh, that, you know, everyone knew. So I was like looking up him and reading his biographies and stuff and going, this is what I need. I need to aspire to be a director because I'm not a director until I've directed about 80 people on a set, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I aspired to that for a long time. I moved to Atlanta about 12 years ago and then I worked on bigger sets and I was striving to do like the union type filmmaking. And I tried that for like three or four years. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't think this is what I want to do. Like, this isn't me. So actually it started solo. And then I tried out the, the regular way. And then I'm now I'm just going back to this, but now knowing why I'm going back to this and having learned a lot of stuff in the traditional way of filmmaking and applying that to, to solo filmmaking and saying, okay, or at least minimalist filmmaking. Cause of course you could do films with like a couple people or a few people. So just knowing what you need on set and knowing what the roles are and stuff like that is really helpful. But I don't, I don't see the need for certain roles. I, I, I know somebody in the union that is on a cherry picker next to a light and that's their job. That's their whole job. 14 hour days on a cherry picker next to a light in case it blows, they could change the bulb. So they literally are staying on that cherry picker, just sitting there eating sandwiches and using the bathroom up there just in case the light blows. And I think that's a, a crazy waste of money. Absolutely. And I think that that's what the union does is waste money. And they do that very well. And I know that's a strong opinion. <laughs> Of course, they do other things well, but I think there's mansions and you could build mansions. And now this is the invention of the tiny house. Ma tiny houses aren't trying to be mansions. They're not even competing with mansions. So mansion builders shouldn't even be threatened by the tiny house builders. It's just I don't want to go in debt every time I make art. I don't want to wait five years every or I, I want to make a film every five years. I want to start making films as much as they come to me if not more. So I'm trying to figure out how to just be able to make a film anytime I think of one instead of just going in debt. So what's a film that you've done where you, you would say that you've taken on the most roles? Oh, I've done a bunch of short films where it's just me, um, just mm -hmm. me and a couple actors, but I did audio, I did DPing, I did uh, camera work, uh, well, uh, you know, editing and just the whole nine. Um, and I actually love that. Uh, and it's, I think some people get offended when they hear that because they think that I'm like saying that I'm better than everyone else. It's just that for every role, you're spending at least a hundred dollars. So at a certain point, you're just saying, okay, do I need somebody to read the script along with the actor? Or can I just know the script myself and check with them? You know, script supervisor is a great luxury, but it's not a necessity and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, so, yeah, I've very done. recently I did a uh, I did a film with Matt Dickstein and I was a script supervisor. And then as the film went on, I ended up being a PA and the slate guy because mm -hmm. he was like, we don't need it. Like, this is way more important. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that happens a lot, especially in indie films. You go in for one role, then you come out the other way. And I think that's a, a large mm -hmm. frustration with a lot of people. They're like very 
frustrated at getting on a film set and then doing something that they weren't asked to do in the originally. And I think the difference is, is I think you can ask the DP to also make the sandwiches. There's nothing wrong with that. Just ask them up front. I think that's the whole difference. That way you're not blindsiding them and saying, hey, by the way, I would expect this of you as well. It's more of like, hey, I'm making a film this weekend and I need somebody to make sandwiches and also run camera. Are you cool with that? And then you could go, I don't think that, I think that's going to take away from my DPing ability or sandwich making ability. And so you could have that discussion. But uh, people, when I said I was going to make my feature film with a low budget, I was going to DP myself. I got comments that people are saying, people are going to have to do more than they were asked to do. And that's not true. Everyone on that film did exactly what they were asked of. I asked them to fill more roles than traditional filmmaking, but I asked them up front. It wasn't, I I didn't throw it at them. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big frustration as well. Is just like throwing a role on somebody, you know? Yeah, we got a we got a question, Isaac. What is the biggest film you directed with? How many actors and actresses? Um. So, have you seen Avengers? Avengers? So I made a no. film a couple years before Avengers came out. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm trying to make it oh, you said Avengers. I thought you said Adventures, not Avengers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I the biggest film as far as uh, biggest. Uh, as many roles in the film. Um, I just am finishing literally today um, my feature film, Student Teacher. And um, I think we had about 20 people in the cast. Uh, We had about 20 extras, 20, 30 extras, actually probably Mm -hmm. total of like 50 extras because of different scenes. Um, A crew of about eight to 15, depending on the day. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that's the biggest thing as far as it was two weeks and I was directing and DPing and producing the thing throughout. Um, I have done music videos with about 450 extras. Um, wow. And what song things was it? Like that. What's that? What was the band and song? Uh, the band was Family Force 5 and it was a uh, video called Zombie. So we had extras. Actually, part of our Kickstarter campaign was we had a they had a lot of fans so what we did is we said hey if you want to be in this uh you could pay to be in this so people drove and flew from all over america to be in this film and people paying people to flew? be in it actually paid for the film or the music video what's that wow people flew yeah people were people were doing like 16 hour flights or 16 hour drives uh they were coming from texas wow. and ohio all over it was wild and so, yeah, so, we had 450 people, I think, on camera. And then uh, I think there was a 600 people total with all the, the parents and stuff like that that came in. So we had – it was wild. It was crazy. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit more about Family Force 5 because uh, I think you told me that's kind of what kickstarted your career, wasn't it, was kind of hanging out with those guys. I th- Yeah, I think – I think there's been a lot of milestones in my career. And I think that Mm -hmm. that was a very big one for me. Um, They were, uh, so House of Heroes was the band that preceded them that I worked with a lot more. And Mm -hmm. they, or I worked with a lot and they trusted me before anyone trusted me. So Family Force 5 is how I kind of got a certain following. But House of Heroes was the band that trusted me with my first music video, my first live video, my first tour video. 
when YouTube came out, the year YouTube came out, I went to House of Heroes and I was like, let's try and do like weekly videos, like maybe like a weekly documentary and stuff like that. This is before there was a term video blog. I mean, there the term video blog was way earlier, but it wasn't a household name. And so we got a YouTube or I got a YouTube channel. I was just making these weekly things. And then Family Force 5 saw that. And then they said, hey, you want we want you to uh, take you on tour to do this. Um, and so I started doing weekly videos for them. And then that blew up because we did like a web series, a 30 episode web series called Really Real Show. And um, and I was like a character on it in a certain degree. And uh, it was a comedy and it was it was very fun. And then eventually I started doing music videos for them and stuff like that too. So we actually watched a couple episodes the other night as a house. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we watched the the furniture store guy. Oh, he had some yeah. kind of like catchy commercial. Yeah, yeah. It's and... like a viral. <laughs> like how did you do you remember that episode pretty oh, well? Oh yeah, like, I remember all of those yeah, so, all of those episodes I pretty much memorized. Like, I mean, that's episode number twelve. Like <laughs> I just <laughs> I yeah. Um yeah, it was that was a wild one. So basically, there's a guy Sammy Stevens that that went pretty viral. He was even in a Family Guy episode, like uh, or a really? parodied in Family Guy. Like he was viral enough at the time. But it's funny how viral, like something goes viral, and he was like on Ellen and Family Guy and stuff. And then now it's like Sammy, who? Um, <laughs> it's just it's just crazy how viral you're. Just like a flash in the pan, no matter what. Like so, mm. it's like uh, Gangnam Style. What you know? <laughs> I, I so, literally yeah, forgot we, about it until you told me Gangnam Style. Right? Yeah, it's like the, <laughs> the thing you can't stop hearing about, and then the next thing you know, it's like we're on to the next thing. You know? Hopefully, it's like coronavirus. So, what? <laughs> I know. Hopefully, that'd be nice, but I don't think so. I think they're gonna probably come up with a campaign like Never Forget or something like that. <laughs> like, Never but forget. I don't think we're gonna forget this pretty quickly. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> like so, the whole entire world. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you're working with Family Force Five, and uh, were you were you still living in New York at this time? Yeah. Just so like I, I was touring with them. Yeah, I started touring them when I was like 20 years old, something like that. Mm. And then eventually was on the road so much. Like I remember one year, I think I was on the road for like nine months straight, and um, we were on the road so much that I just like left my stuff at my parents' house and was just touring around and stuff like that. Um, and then eventually the guitarist of family force five, his uncle really liked the really real shows, the web series that we did. And he saw them and he was a video person in Atlanta. And he said, if you move to Atlanta, I'll give you some freelance gigs. And so I moved here like in 2009 to pursue that. So it, it, there was a lot of things connected to family force five. And so like, that was pretty cool. Was that weird moving to the South instead of, you know, somewhere uh, like New York? Was that a weird culture shock to you? It was because in the North, I don't think I cared or knew the difference. I didn't even know the Mason Dixon line. I didn't even know the term Mason Dixon line. Like I knew we won the war and I knew that that's over with, like it's done. And so I moved to the South and, it's like a different America, or at least it's kind of like Texas where they're like their own country. You know, like I was like, whoa, like I didn't even know there's a difference between Georgia and New York, but apparently in Georgia, they totally have drawn the line in the sand and said, it's just funny. Cause I, I really didn't see a difference between Georgia and New York and 
uh, Chicago. And then I move here and then I'm like, oh, they care. They really care. So there was a culture shock for sure. And I definitely was, um, I didn't like Atlanta at first. I thought really, it just took me a while, man. Took me a while. Now I love it. And you moved before the big uh, film boom here. I moved pretty much the year or the year before. Because wow. people would consider the film boom to be like when Walking Dead started filming. I think that was mm-hmm. 2008. And I moved here 2009, like February. So it was like right. At, like, I feel like it just caught the wave. And so when the film boom came to Atlanta, like five years later, like in five years after I was a little bit more established as like a editor and filmmaker and stuff, when people were looking for filmmakers, they were like, oh, hey, you're established Atlanta filmmaker. (laughs) So it like really worked out for me. So I bet that was really cool to be like, yeah, I'm an Atlanta filmmaker at the time, especially since it was like rising. It it didn't feel as connected, honestly. Like I didn't really catch that Atlanta was going to be so big in film. I just knew it was a bigger Mm -hmm. city than upstate New York that I I was in from Syracuse. So there was, it, it did, it was a bigger city. So I thought there was just more opportunity because it was a bigger city, but it wasn't, it wasn't until way later that I started realizing that it was because Atlanta was doing a lot of incentives for film and stuff like that. So I was like, Oh, that's cool. lucked out here that is cool so you moved to atlanta did you immediately start the thunderdome as soon as you like touch base here or was I, that a few like a year later it was about a year year and a half later i i moved here 2009 and then i moved to california for like a summer and then i moved back and that's when i moved back is when i started the thunderdome in 2010 so nice so how did that was this like an epiphany that hit you or was this like something you thought of over time? It was something I thought of over time. I think a lot of my best ideas have been stolen from musicians. Um, so I was kind of, my dad was a musician and I've toured with, I've done videos for musicians since I was like 14. And so I started watching musicians and how, cause mu- music is a more established genre than film. So mm-hmm. I was trying to learn and take from them and what they're doing as a community and musicians. So like the idea of like open mic nights and the idea of bands getting together to uh, live in one house. So like the idea of if you had a four piece band and you get a five bedroom house, you have the fifth bedroom for a band practice room and all the roommates are cool with one of the rooms being designated for band practice. And so and then also there's mutual beneficial where it's like, hey, I'm practicing bass today. Do you want to practice your drums? And so they'd go into the room together. And so I saw that a couple of times and I was like, why aren't filmmakers doing this? Because film, I don't think it should be, but it's it is sometimes it feels pretty isolated or competitive. And so I think that people um I think there's something really cool about like having another filmmaker in the house that kind of understands the idea of like getting a camera rental for the weekend and wanting to practice it. And it's like, Hey, Trevor, you want to go out outside and like, let me practice the camera and stuff. And then you're asking questions like, Oh, does it do this? And we're kind of like brainstorming and figuring out the limits of the camera. And then you're Mm -hmm. ready for the next shoot the next day. So like, that's kind of where I started rolling that idea around in my head. I think it was like 2006 or 2007 when I was like, Oh, that'd be so cool. Like when I move out one day, I'm going to get a house and get a bunch of filmmakers. Um, 
and so yeah it worked out and uh started growing and then we started doing the open mic night kind of things for filmmakers like five minutes or less open screenings um different things like that uh outdoor movie nights and it was it was just really cool and everyone in the house was cool with leaving the garage open for a studio to film in and then also a movie theater room and stuff like that so um, and to clarify, yeah, it ended up being Thunderdome is not an arena or anything. It's actually just a house. <laughs> yeah. Like you're actually in the Thunderdome right now. That's right. Yeah, this is the the Thunderdome. Uh, it's now it's a kind of an artist complex where it's mm-hmm. this house, the house next door, and then an RV out on the because uh, we're on a dead end street. So uh, we made the breaker box uh, give us 30 amps to the RV so we could plug in our RV there. Um, and rent some um, power to that. So, uh, yeah, I think we got 11 or 12 people um, here, wow. which is great. And then we still have our theater room. In fact, they're premiering a movie right next door or right in, like literally on the other side of this room in the garage. Because oh, nice. uh, we all live with like actors and filmmakers. So one of our actors uh, actually just premiered a movie. So they were all watching that. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> I got to do this podcast thing. <laughs> so so um, this question came to me a few minutes ago. So, and we've talked about like, I think you called it exclusive exclusivity in filmmaking where uh, and you were talking about like, you know, you get a camera and you say, Hey, Trevor, let's go film something. I want to show you. And I like ask questions. Um, mm-hmm. I remember you tell, talking about this during leg day one time where, you know, somebody may not want to teach you how to use a camera because they're afraid that you're going to do something with that knowledge that you have. Does that make sense? I, I know, I know yeah. we've talked about this before. I've met people in the past that I would be like, hey, that's a really cool uh, look you got there. Like what lenses did you use? And they say, yeah, I don't really share what lenses I use because that's kind of my fingerprint or my brand. So I'm not going to really um share that and i kind of get that like i got it like when i heard that at first i started going you know what maybe i should be a little bit more closed fisted with my ideas and stuff like that and um of course you meet a billion writers that will like send you a script but you have to send an nd sign an nda before you read the script and um you, you know like they copyright it and they they and I, I just think there's so many ideas out there that like I've sent my script to so many people. In fact, in my casting call for my feature film, I actually sent out the full script to like, I think we had 1200 uh, like open call auditions come in because we had a really good casting director. So I, but I said, Hey, like, I don't want you to just sign up for this film unless you know what it's about. So if you want to read the whole script, here it is. And that's actually bared a lot of fruit for me to not be so close-fisted a lot of people actually have come up to me like one guy came to leg day like a year or two later and he said actually my girlfriend read that whole script and i thought it was the best script we have ever read and i was like wow that's awesome um i think the best one they've read as far as auditions i don't know but i i think that if you are close-fisted you're not an artist you're you're you made a formula and that's it and you're depending on that formula to be your cash cow for the rest of your life but like if you're an artist you're flowing with ideas Mm -hmm. at least if you're like an artist that's like practicing to not be afraid and fear of failure and stuff like that and eventually you start getting 
somebody steals one idea, cool, I'll make another one. Like it's it's like a farmer like hoarding crops. It's like it, it's going to grow out of the ground. It's not even you're not even doing anything. You're just putting it in I you're doing a lot, but you know what I mean? Like I don't feel like a lot of people are really stealing ideas. And maybe I'm wrong about that, mm -hmm. but um Any, I've actually seen as um filmmakers like should hold like Anyone that would say something like, you know, Wes Anderson doesn't give his secrets away. Like Roger Deakins has an entire website dedicated to how he lights stuff. Right. Right. And that's how most people know who Roger Deakins is. Not entirely, but like a lot. It put him on the map in a certain way. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of people are actually becoming getting a name for themselves because they're sharing their information. They're sharing mm -hmm. how they're doing stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I just really think that. Um, like if you and I had the same exact script, if I wrote my script and I gave it to you, we would come out with two different films, like two completely different films. Mm -hmm. And that's like something beautiful about that. Like look at the Fire Festival last year or a couple of years ago. They put out two films at the same week and it ended up blowing up. I think it helped because when you mm -hmm. watch a good film, you want to watch as much information on that film and you start browsing and rabbit trailing and stuff like that. In fact, if probably the best thing I could do for my film is probably share the script and say, make your version. And if there's 30 versions of the same film, then people are actually going to be more interested to compare them and see where the deviations are per director and stuff. So um, I know that like, I have a stronger opinion about that. I know that there's a lot of people that would love to debate me on that. Um, and I think that I could see an argument for both sides. I really could. But I, I just, I'm not afraid of somebody taking my ideas because where did you get your ideas? Where did you get this idea to podcast? You're the first person to ever podcast. You're the first I'm person the to first do a live podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you saw few enough, you, you saw enough podcasts where eventually you started going, that's something that I would like to do. The thing is, is when you're doing you, eventually you inspire people to do something similar. And then what happens is there's a copy and then a deviation, a copy and a deviation. The, the, the thing that we don't want is people just copying straight up, like literally taking your film and uploading it onto their, cha their channel. But if you deviate from it, that's what a meme is. That's what hip hop is. That's what a lot of music and a lot of art is, is they say, yes, and yes to the old generation and what all these artists are doing, but I'm also going to add on to that and iterate and deviate from that. Like look at Tarantino, all of his stuff is copied and it's a remix of all the art that he loves. And that's what makes it, but that's like more obvious and more like on the nose, but that's what everyone's doing. That's what Scorsese's doing. That's what Spielberg's doing. You watch enough old films, you'll start seeing that in the new films. And so to me, I feel like as an artist, once you make the thing, that's yours. But all the copies and deviations from that thing are not. And I know that that's like, doesn't make money and doesn't, or maybe it does, but it just is, I don't know. I think that that's how art works. That's how ballet works. That's how life works. That's how broccoli and lightning and it's all fractals and art is fractals and money stops fractals. So.
that's a, there's a beautiful video that you showed me uh everything is a remix yeah it's um, amazing anyone that's listening like i highly recommend that you watch that if you've ever been discouraged that you know what's the point of trying if i'm not original like right. my thing is the 80s like i love the aesthetic of the 80s heck my podcast is the 80s themed right yeah but i've never had anyone come up to me like hey man I would watch your stuff, but you know, you kind of are stealing the eighties. Like you're like, everything right. you're doing is from the eighties. Like no one's ever said that to me. It's but even if they I've did, made it unique, even if they did like whatever, like that's not yeah. your audience. You want to get the audience that likes the eighties. Like mm -hmm. I've actually was thinking about this while uh, doing the final tweaks of my film is if I listen to almost every, if I listen to every note that somebody said after watching my film, I want to have a film. Because mm -hmm. I've had people say, this is my favorite scene. And then another person say, this scene you need to cut completely. And then I had another person say that about different scenes. And then I say, people say, you need to take out this line. You should take out this. You should take out this. You should take out this. And it's like, what, what do you want? Like a no film? Like, you know what I mean? And it's like, and I don't even think it's that bad. It's not like they're trying to get me to take out stuff that like is objectively bad. They're actually stuff that other people like. So mm. who are you going to listen to? Uh, David Fincher, who I love, he always says like, um, what does he say? I didn't make it for you. You know, like the um, if somebody says, oh, I didn't like Fight Club or I didn't like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He's like, well, I didn't make it for you. I made it for the people that like this kind of stuff. You know, and you're making your podcast for the people that like this kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. so I think just do. I you, remember you know? I was working at an ad agency and uh, like we were, we were sharing like what we were doing over the weekend one time. And he asked me, Oh, Trevor, what are you doing? And I was like, Oh, I'm making a horror film. And he was like, why would you do that? I hate horror. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I'm not making it for you. I'm making it cause I like horror movies. Right. It's like, golly, my gosh. <laughs> also, if people that have watched your film and are making these mental notes, I feel like you're not really watching the movie also. You're just like well, trying to find flaws. Yeah. I mean, I will be fair. Like a lot of, a lot of the feedback has been in the context of a screener. So like mm -hmm. it was, but that's after a while I started realizing that, and a friend told me this, who's directed a few features. He said, listen to the choir, not the solo artist." So like if the whole audience, if you got 50 people saying like, I didn't get it, then like listen to that. But if they're saying, hey, I love this. And then one person's like, take out that last scene. It's too on the nose. Then you're like, okay, well, other people loved it. So I don't know how much I'm going to really, you know, like listen to every single buddy, you know? I guess it's like I'd getting a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I mean, right. I no one no one should but if somebody was like you know like a uh, very loyal to rotten tomatoes and they're like oh well there was one percent of people that didn't like it so i'm not gonna go watch it right yeah totally mm. yeah but it is easy as an artist especially to listen to the negative and i think right. that that's what a lot of times stops artists from making art um, is we just are always listening to that one voice or that one comment or that one dislike you could have a thousand likes on a youtube video then you have like two dislikes and you're like oh i want to go to their house and explain to them why there's an <laughs> audio pop and stuff and they could have just been like browsing other things like how to make a 
a garden in your backyard and then this video pops up and then they're like, I don't want this to show up in my feed. So they dislike it. You don't know the whole story. So it's like, mm -hmm. listen to the choir essentially in that. I remember when I was a kid, like, and granted, like almost all my early YouTube videos are pretty bad, like objectively yeah. at this point. But I remember one time, because I was like a very fragile, insecure high school kid. I made a sure. video and I got one comment. Everybody was telling me like, Trevor, this is hilarious. This is so good. And I got right. one comment and it just said, you're gay. And I was just like, oh man, maybe this wasn't that good. And right. years <laughs> later, I was like, that was so stupid. Why did I listen to that guy? Yeah. And also screw you because there's a lot of like to that commenter. It's like, there's a, there's, that doesn't mean my film's bad because there's a lot of gay filmmakers that are really good. <laughs> so what are you trying to say? <laughs> like, well, like, I guess I come from the South where like, yeah, well, also like back then. Yeah. That... <laughs> but it was the whole thing. So when yeah. do you think criticism is important when it's like not needed? I don't, I think, I think it's really important to know that art is, what art really is, is it's very, very important, but it's not everything. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're not making like a medicine that could possibly kill somebody if you get it wrong. You're not doing brain surgery where it's like, if you're objectively wrong on your process, you can kill people. You're making art. You're making a video to make people laugh, hopefully. And so the the big thing is like, well, why, what is their criticism and what are they really trying to say? A lot, I've found that the people that criticize the most are the people that make the least because they're sitting down and what they're doing is they're storing up a ton of book knowledge on making art. So like I've read every book and I've been to film school for four years and I've watched every commentary that David Fincher ever did. And so I know everything about making films, but they don't know how to do it on the field. They've never been there. So like, it's very easy to train your brain to know when somebody made a mistake, but it's a different thing to be able to avoid those mistakes on the moment when it starts raining and you only have one more take. Those sorts of things are only people that experience people or only things that experienced people would really understand. And those people usually will watch a film and go, oh man, I'm, I can't believe you got good audio in there on a moving car. Like, good job on you because I've done that before. But the people that read the books and they watch the YouTube videos on how to make films and they don't make films, to me, it's like reading about English or like reading about Spanish your whole life, but never actually having a conversation. Like how good do you think you're gonna be? And and you could be sitting there and, and watch all these movies of, you know, Americans going over to Mexico to talk and going, they totally, they totally did not put the right word in front of the other right word and they did it out of order. And it's like, just chill, dude. Like. <laughs> Like once you go over there, as long as what you were trying to communicate was communicated, it doesn't matter. So if I wanted to make you a laugh, make you laugh on a film and you laugh, what's the what's the problem? Mm -hmm. Like who cares if the the you know like the camera shaking and stuff. The thing about camera shakes and continuity and audio pops, the whole thing about that is those are distractions that could possibly get in the way of the objective. 
but sometimes I think actually the majority of the time when it comes to a non-filmmaking audience, they it doesn't distract them from the uh, objective. So like an electrician is trained to come in to my house and he could see the electric I did on my garbage disposal and he could tell me what's wrong with it. Okay. You mm -hmm. walk in, you're just going to turn on the garbage disposal and you don't care. You don't care that I had this, like I, everything's safe, but there's one wire that's, you know, here or there. They're trained to see the flaws. That's why we hire plumbers to come in is because they, they could look in and they know what the problem is. So with a filmmaker, let's say with an audio person, with an audio person, they're trained to not only be able to see and identify and articulate the problems of a film, but they could also solve it. But most people are not trained to be able to identify the problems in your film. The majority, a large, large, large majority. And if you get out of the film world and stop trying to impress filmmakers and you just show your films to the general audience, they go, wow, I was really entertained. And you're like, cool. <laughs> but don't show your, I mean, if you really want to see if it's fail proof, you show it to people that are trained to see the flaws and that's going to be helpful. But there's a certain point where you go, okay, cool. Well, I didn't have the budget to make a man mansion with the best this and this. I had the budget to make a tiny house. And if you can't know what the difference between a mansion and a tiny house is, I don't even want your criticism. I don't even care for you to watch my film because if you're comparing my $25,000 film to a, a $1.2 billion film like the Avenger or a, a Avatar or something like that, we have a problem. I think you're not being able to see the two different things. They're two different products. You know, mm -hmm. there's a difference between a McDonald's burger and then like a, a like a burger that's really made by a fancy chef. And so one thing about film and film audiences and especially filmmakers is we have not drawn the line in the sand to say the difference between a film and a film because union films are not indie. Well, indie films are now union. Indie films start at like $5 million, which is crazy. So like a low, the, people say low budget, 1.2 million. It's like, that's low budget. You guys aren't creative. In fact, I have zero, I don't think there's a creative bone. I can make you a good film for $5 million. You know how good of a DP I could get and a good writer and a good uh, director? I could produce you a good film for $5 million. I think the talent is when you can make a film that's good for very little. And those are the filmmakers I really respect because they're the punk rockers, the hip hoppers that are like, yo, we're just going to make it and we're sick of waiting around or going in debt just to make art. And I think that's what a true artist is, is somebody that's like, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to make art because it's coming out of my bones. I have to make art, you know, and I'm sick of being in debt for it. One of my favorite YouTubers, uh, you've heard of Casey Neistat, right? Uh, he's he's one of my all time favorites. Like he um, he really showed that you can make something special with like doing it on your own. Totally. He's got a really cool video. It was like how to film by Casey Neistat. Mm -hmm. And it's such a simple and just like it's such a short video too like you everyone should go watch it yeah. and he starts it off with saying he compares two films and one was this film that he saw at a film festival like many years ago and the budget was like not even like ten thousand dollars or something sure. like that 
and they edited it on iMovie and they used like this really like crappy camera. And he said it won like best film at this festival. Mm-hmm. And then he compared it to like, I, heard, I guarantee you probably don't remember this movie. It was a Peter Pan movie called Pan. It starred Hugh Jackman and it costs like a ridiculous amount of money. It costs like $400 million. And he said it had the best actors. It had a really re- well, well, re- or world-renowned like DP and director and everything. Right. He was like, nobody saw anything of it. It was critically panned, didn't make it to any festivals or anything. Right. And his point was like, if, if the best films were made with the most money, then like no one would have a chance. Like these guys would totally. always win. So, totally. and I, I love that. And I've kept that in the back of my mind. Like, and I think this is a good segue to talk about leg day. Um, so, so leg day is essentially your creation. It's a game that you play at the Thunderdome. Well, kick the ladder is the game. Kick the ladder, sorry. And leg day I, is the event that we have leg day at. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and uh, you can't see you. It's like right here, but I have these frames hanging up. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Isaac, tell me like what those frames mean and what's uh, love for you. Yeah, to explain what uh, kick the ladder is. Grab the let me grab. Uh, well, yeah. Anyway, kick the ladder is a game, a filmmaking game I've I've been developing. That is, you take three dice that are all associated with certain rules. So the first die is the number. The second die is what that number corresponds to. So you could be like four, and then you roll the other dice, and it'll be like locations. And then the third die, which is a twenty-sided die, will have one like camera restriction, which would be like. Uh, shot on a tripod entirely, include a sh- slow motion shot, or include a f- uh, clock that's unaltered at 11.48. Um, so like you have to work those rules in. So you could do four sh- four locations all handheld. And within that, it comes up with a hashtag, which is KTL, which kick, kick the ladder, uh, then 4-3 or 4-5-H. So four five would represent locations and then H would represent handheld. So it'd be KTL 4345H. And that would be a hashtag that you could click on any social platform and watch all the films that were uploaded within those rules. Um, So it's been a great game, I think, since the start of it, which was June of last year. Uh, I think we've made over 800 films, which is crazy. So, and because of this game, I've made I think about uh, pretty much twenty films at this point. Yeah, that I wouldn't have made because of this game. Yeah, and but, uh, great. I love your. So, stuff. for those of you, thank you. Um, for those of you that just thought Isaac did, you know, uh, expert algebra right in front of you, he uh, <laughs> it's it's really not that complicated. It's uh, yeah. it's just as simple as like make a film with five people, use yeah. the slow mo shot, and turn it in by next Monday. It's yeah, really so just you that have simple. a week to do it. Yeah, yeah, you have a week to do it, and if you submit by the week, you could upload it on, um, or you could premiere it at Leg Day, which is the event to show those films. So some nights we have like twenty to fifty films in one night that are all a minute long or minute or less. Um, so people come and they go to the garage at the Thunderdome, and it's usually pretty packed out. I mean, you've been there. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because I actually announced that the last one was the last one here before the COVID kind of blew up. And mm-hmm. we actually had to open the garage door and have the screen outside of it um, to to fit everyone in because it's like standing room only at this point. I think we've gotten like 60 to 80 people around like almost every week. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been wild. And so what I'm trying to do is actually make Kick the Ladder go more global. And actually this COVID thing is a great kind of opportunity to kind of get people to start making films by themselves. And I think really, if I had to summarize one thing that um, is my whole MO or my goal in life is to just let filmmakers know what they're capable of. And I think a lot of people are sitting at their house right now and they're like, oh, I wish I could make a film. I wish I could make a film, but I don't have $5 million and I don't have 80 people to help me. But what we're already seeing right now is people are already realizing that they're capable of making a good film for very little money or no money just in their house because they're staying at home because of this quarantine thing. And so people are making good quality films by themselves. And I think a lot of lights are coming on in a lot of people's heads and going like, oh, I can make a good film with, I don't need all the things that I was told that I needed. And I think that people are starting to embrace that or if anything, they're going to embrace that in a few months or in a few years, we're going to see a boom of solo filmmaking and people just kind of minimalist filmmaking or very few crews um, and coming together and just making more films. Because mm-hmm. if you have a, if you're making a film in one weekend and you have 20 people on your crew, then that's one film gets made. But if you could teach all 20 people to make their own film, then you have 20 films getting made. And so when people assume that it's like, selfish or doesn't play well with others when you're kind of like when I'm promoting solo filmmaking, it's actually the opposite. I want to see as many films coming out. I want to have a wave or a flood of solo films coming out where people are like, oh my gosh, you can make good films for very little. I want to push those limits. And I think Kick the Ladder has been doing doing that in a lot of ways and kind of letting people focus on the objective and when they do that, they start their subconscious is starting to play with it. And you've been to a lot of them, the majority of them, and you could see how the fingerprint or the individual expression of each filmmaker is coming up to the stage and showing their film. And you know what you're getting. You know kind of what they're exploring or what how they see the world a little bit more, which I think is what true art is. It's not this like low risk, high money you know, like all those things, it's actually like, no, we're going to take a, we're going to risk it. And we're actually going to put ourselves like jump off the cliff or kick the ladder essentially to like, see what comes up when we just start making films instead of overthinking of it and stuff like that. You showed a uh, two videos one night at leg day that I thought was a, a beautiful example um, of like what kick the ladder represents and solo filmmaking uh, you showed one guy skiing down a hill mm-hmm. and like going up a ramp, and of course he kills it. He's like professional, like yeah, you can it was tell, the, like on the ESPN. world record, the longest jump of a skiing. Yeah, and yeah. even by the title, you're like, oh, he's gonna kill it, obviously. Yeah. But then you showed a little girl going down. That was her very first time, I think, wasn't it? it was, yeah, it was like an eight year old girl doing like a like thirty meters or forty mm-hmm. meters or something like that. And she goes down and you kind of have this, you start getting this feeling in your stomach. You're like, Oh my God, I wanted to make it. Like it's, she's a little girl and she's going down this huge hill that even I wouldn't go down. Right. And she right. makes it and you hear her go like, yay. And yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. dad or mom is there like going, you did it, honey. Oh my gosh. Right. And you're like, yes. Like that's, I feel like that's what kick the ladder represents. It's totally, it's like a, like we've had plumbers and roofers like come in 
-hmm. and make films. And it's so cool that you're showing people like, you know, like um, a construction worker, he can play guitar. Nobody will bat an eye. But if a construction worker were to say like, oh, I'm going to go make a film this weekend, you'd probably like uh, give him kind of some kind of weird eye. Right. Um, How do you explain like for the future of filmmaking? Do you think do you see it becoming more normal to say that? Yeah. So what I've been doing is paying attention to every other medium of art. And what do Mm -hmm. all other mediums are that film doesn't? So film has been around for like 124 years. Like we have not been around for a long time. And it started with a very expensive medium. So like it it literally started from two film, uh, two millionaires making a bet on a horse and whether or not the horse's legs lift up. So started Mm -hmm. as a million dollar bet, you know? And so, or maybe not the bet was a million, but for millionaires. And then it started with big cameras that were very expensive because the process of making film was very expensive. So it was only for the rich. And if you watch that over the years, it got cheaper and cheaper. And the, the, the more that the technology of cameras got better, the less people you needed on set to help out. And then even with film noir, which was just like uh, filmmakers getting the leftover budget from the A movies, they would have like one light to use and very little stuff and they are very limited. And that's why you have the film noir look, which is now a genre. And it's because of low budget filmmakers trying to creative, be creative on making films. So if you watch that and now in the past 10 years, 15 years, cameras have been accessible where pe- more people have been growing up with their, their parents' cameras and playing around with those and stuff like that. Like Spielberg did that in the 60s with his dad's eight millimeter camera, but most families didn't have a eight millimeter camera. So eventually when cameras got cheaper, more people, it was more accessible. And now we're at this point where anyone can make a film. And within that, if you compare this with all the other mediums of art, you could do every medium of art as a hobby but film has never really figured out the hobbyist yet. Because if you're a filmmaker, you're pursuing it your whole life, right? But if you mm-hmm. want to go on a date night and do pottery or glass blowing, or, or if you want to go on a, uh, you know, do sip and paint and painting, and if you want to just freestyle in your car with your friends, or if you want to just sing karaoke, if you want to do any medium of art, you could do that. But film is for filmmakers. And I don't think that that's a good I think we're missing out on a entire, entire voice of people. And also film is just now figuring out what lower class filmmaking was or what it is or what it can be of like people that can't afford a set decorator, but how the union does a film where it's like, okay, this character lives in a trailer park. So what they're going to do is they're going to rent out a whole studio. They're going to build, have a carpenter come in for a few weeks and build the structure for a trailer They're going to have a set decorator go to a thrift store and buy all these stuff and buy curtains and spray it with stuff so it looks like it was smoked in for 20 years. And three weeks later, they're going to have a very good-looking trailer home. But you could just go to a trailer park and say, I'll give you $50 to film here, and they will be thrilled. And they will talk about that for the rest of their lives and say, yeah, somebody came in here and filmed a movie. You want to see it? People are thrilled about that. But what we've done is we figured out how to make as bleed as much money from people from filmmaking. And I think 
I want to get money out of the equation as much as possible because anyway, the film has not lend itself to hobbyists. And what's cool about Kick the Ladder is I think like we've had over, I think around a hundred or 80 or 80 to a hundred debuts, which is part of the game is that you earn a frame for doing certain things. So if you make a film, you earn a frame. And if you've debuted and you never made a film before in your entire life, you make a, you earn a frame. And we've had people that work at banks. We've had roofers, we've had EMTs and diesel mechanics making films. And some of them keep coming back. Some of the debut people have been the ones that are most dedicated and really understanding what it is to express themselves. And I love that because a lot of people are starting to see how freeing it could be to just trust yourself and just make films and not overthink it. And, and it's just really cool. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered your question, but <laughs> no, it totally does. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, kick the ladder. It that genuinely. I remember the very first one that I made. Um, that, or the very first film that I made was a kick the ladder um, participation thing. I remember it was two trampolines. The very first, like big, like I'm gonna make this. I love the '80s. I've always wanted to make an '80s sure. romantic comedy. I remember I made it, and for the first time in my life, after I hit, I hit record to stop it. Um, or I stopped hitting record. I was like, I did it. That was the very first time I ever made a film where I was like, I have no regrets. Like there was not one thing that I thought about. I was like, everything That's was in awesome. focus, everything That's like just so worked cool. out. Yeah. And I was like, I would have never done that if I kept making films. Yeah. Like, I feel like the more you make something like the better you get. And totally. I think that's such a beautiful thing about kick the ladder is not all, you're not saying like, you're not giving people a month to make a film. You're right. giving everyone a week. Mm -hmm. And some people like complain about that. Like, Hey, why not a week and a half for two weeks? Right, like, why right. can't it, why can't we have all this time? And I feel like that just defeats the purpose of the game. It's like, totally. you know, if like, let's say you were a professor and you had two students and you told one, like, I want you to make one film for this whole year. And by December 31st, you have to premiere it. Oh, and you have another student and he has to make a film every week. And then on December 31st, he's going to show all his films. Like which filmmaker do you think is going to have the better films 100%. by the end of the year? Totally. Like, Who do you I, want to I hear feel... talk than the person that's talked, like practice talking their whole life instead of the kid that's just learning how to speak, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I totally agree with that. Like, I really do think this game should be in schools. I think it should be in colleges. Like that's how I think filmmaking should be taught. Cause um, I was an advertising major in college and I took a few film classes, but I literally only made like probably three films right. during the entire totally. like semester. And then uh, within that time I made like, like 10, like with right. Kick the Ladder, which is yeah. nuts. It's kind of like how 90% of Christians never read the Bible. Like, <laughs> I feel like 90% of filmmakers never made a film. They just went to film school and now they're in debt and now they're sitting on a cherry picker next to a light waiting mm. for it to blow. Like, why did you, why did you get into film in the first place? Like, like go after it, do it, go make films. Mm. Like stop overthinking it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it, um, I, I say this a few times is the idea of if you tell somebody like, I want to drive for NASCAR and then somebody's like, 
Well, what you need to do is learn how to work in a pit crew and change a tire in three seconds flat. That's what you need to do. And you're like, okay. And then you go to school to learn how to be in a pit crew. And then you have to pay debt for a long time. So you are obligated to work in the pit crew because you can't really take the risk to work on your skills to eventually pay for it. Like, mm-hmm. or to eventually like take the risk and start driving. Or like the idea of like, you should buy a Ferrari. First day you want to get on a car. It's like, no, buy it, buy a stupid, dumb $650 Craigslist car and f- f- like learn how to drive on that. Don't start big. Like, why is everyone's first film they're trying to do like $500,000? It's as crazy as reading books on poker playing and saying and doing like school for poker playing and never playing with your friends, never playing poker with your friends and just saying, I need investors to go to Vegas because there's a million dollar pot and it's a hundred thousand dollar entry fee. And you go to investors and you say, I've been studying poker my whole life and I would love a hundred thousand dollars. And then you go to Vegas and then they say, bets to you, here's your ante up, blah, blah, blah. And you're like so thrown off because you've never played poker intuitively. You've only done it rationally. So you've only played Mm -hmm. poker with one side of your brain. And I think most filmmakers have only made films with one side of their brain and they've never really explored actually making a film, but they've probably made a film in their head a bunch of times. And this is what I would do if I had a camera and if I had, oh man, the reason I'm not making a film right now is because I don't have enough money to do. And it's like, well, write a cheaper film. Stop making movies about UFOs if you can't afford it. Like if you're a creative, if you have that on your Instagram profile and you say creative, then start being more creative with come up with a new formula. The formula that the union's giving us is really not a good formula. It's it's the way the union is built is to make money for a lot of people. And I think it's doing a wonderful job at that. And I think it's great. Go ahead and do that. But if you ever watch the movie producers, the movie producers is these producers of theater have figured out that if they get a million dollar investment for a play, they have to pay it back if the play is successful. But if the film, if the play is a failure, they don't have to pay the million dollars back. So what they do is they purposely try to make a failure of a play. And I think that when people are saying like, why are we making Sharknado? Why are we making these films that are failing? Or like Mall Cop 4, why are we making <laughs> bad films? And it's because Let's say you're an investor and I say, I need $5 million for a film. And you give me that $5 million. Now I pay myself my day rate and I get my $3,000 a day for six months. And then I get all my friends to get their day rates for however much money. And it doesn't matter if the film makes any money because I got my day rate and I can move on to the next film. And that's what filmmaking is right now. And I think that's garbage. I hate that because what people are doing is just taking one person's idea and trying to bleed as much money from it as possible. Even distribution companies. Let's say I take my film that I made and I sell it to a distribution company. In the contract, they don't pay me until they started making their money back. So let's say they have an agreement to pay me a certain percentage, but then in their their marketing or their booking, as they say, well, it cost us $100,000 to make the trailer. It took cost us $100,000 to hire the marketing team for your film. It cost us uh, $20,000 to make the poster. Next thing you know, 
they've made a ton of money from your film, but they've never technically paid off your film because it's now $250,000 to promote your film. And they're not promoting your film, but they lump it into the marketing thing. They say, uh, they say, well, technically, because we're a company and we have our own website, when we market our website to Facebook, we're marketing our website, not your film, but your film is part of our website. So that is lumped into the filmmaking or the 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 money it costs to um, promote your film. And so you don't make any money from that. So what people are doing is they take one script and then they they get as much money from it as they can. And they don't care if it's successful or not because they're making money. And that is sick to me. I hate that because film to me is like a childhood, like the most purest thing. It's my first language. It's the thing that made me find who, out who I was as a, a 10-year-old boy, just trying to figure out what I was and what I liked. And, and I got to explore the world and learn about reality through film and a, for, for, through a camera. And finding out over 15 years of doing films and exploring films and then finding out about the union and how it works and how it's literally like, hey, Trevor, you want to get $600 a day to sit in a cherry picker? A cherry picker next to a light? I don't care if the film makes money because I'm going to give you your $600 a day. And, and then they next thing you know, the film never gets seen by anyone. And I don't even make the film that I wanted to because they took all my ideas and they had so many people overseeing it and saying, no, what you need is you need a good visual effects supervisor because I want to get my friend a few more dollars. And of course, there's good people in the union. I'm not saying it's totally corrupt, but the purpose of the union is to make money. If you want to make money doing films, join the union. You will get your money. That's wonderful. I'm fine with that. That's not my bag. I don't care. I want to make films that resonate with me, and I want to make films that they will show at my funeral or that they will show my kids. That's what I want to make. And those films usually aren't attached to a lot of money. Those films... The films that are really show my fingerprint are the ones that I made the least amount of money. The ones that I did out of my own pocket. And I think that that's the best art out there. Not the stuff you've that's made a been... feature too, right? Mm-hmm. I've made, and, uh... I've produced about six of them, but none of them came out yet. <laughs> so the one that the one that you're working on right now, uh, student teacher, mm-hmm. um, this goes into what you were saying. Uh, I remember you told me when you were making this, you had a lot of people telling me, telling you, uh, like Isaac, you need, you have to have this, you have to have this, and you told them no, and then mm-hmm. people were saying, uh, "Dude, this isn't going to be successful." What did you say to those people? Uh, people, well, ne- they never said it wouldn't be success. Well, they said that 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 like, oh, my crew is going to be overworked and they're going to be getting like having things that weren't asked to them to do and they're going to have to do that and everyone's mm-hmm. going to be overworked and stuff like that. Now, by the way, we wrapped on time every day. And that's like, that's really awesome, I think. We've wrapped early sometimes, you know, like, so nobody was overworked. You Overworked is like 16-hour days where people are getting paid, but they're dying on the way home because they're falling asleep at the wheel, which is a real problem in the union. So like, I said I wanted to DP and direct and people just had a fit. And it's because people, and I get it. People are scared because they're they're afraid of losing their job security. 
Mm. Like if you're getting $600 a day for sitting in a cherry picker and you see this podcast, you're going to be furious at me. You're going to be mad that I'm even speaking out against it. And it's fine. Like I'm not threatening you. I'm not even trying to obliterate the union. I'm trying to give an alternative to the union. And I want to tell filmmakers, you can make a film without going in debt. That's something that I think filmmakers don't realize. I wish I actually didn't listen to, I listen to uh, filmmakers just enough to be in debt for my film. But if I did it all again, I would actually make it cheaper. But I, I listened to too many voices and now I owe like 25 grand. So like, it, it sucks because I was debt free my whole life. And now I'm in debt because I had to listen to other people's idea of what filmmaking is. Instead of kind of creating or being more creative and figuring out cheaper ways to do something. Not with screwing anyone over. Not with, you know. So I listened to too many voices, uh, but and at the same time, I did say, no, I'm going to do it this way because I've made, I've probably made 10,000 hours of footage. Like, well, I have 10,000 hours of footage for sure, mm. raw, because I've done this since I was 10. So since 1998. Um, so now I have so many films that I made where I was the director and DP, like short films, music videos. I was a director or DP of a, uh, that 450 person extra crew or the cast. And I was a director and the DP of that. But when I decided to make a feature film, everyone was really just upset at, or not everyone, but a, a it felt like a lot of people were opposed to me even doing a, a feature and directing and DPing. But it's like, well, if I did all these short films that way and music videos that way and documentaries this way, why is why is the difference between a 10 minute or 20 minute film I could direct and DP? But if that film gets any longer, I'm not allowed to. It didn't make sense to me. So I was like, no, I'm going to direct in DP because this is where I'm most comfortable. And also, I don't have the budget to pay for another person. I don't have a budget to pay for another mouth. Like, I'm paying my crew, and I paid all my crew and cast. And I'm really proud of that. But at the same time, because of that and because it was coming out of my pocket, I'm not going to compare my filmmaking to somebody that's getting $5 million to spend money on all their friends. I would love to hire all my friends. If I got $5 million for, for film, I wouldn't do a solo thing and pocket all that money. I would love to be like, yo, Trevor, I want you to sit in a cherry picker. <laughs> <laughs> all about the cherry. That's what I'm going to call this episode. The cherry picker. <laughs> the cherry um, picker hater. I yeah. <laughs> I, would love to, I would love to pay my friends. Um, but if you're spending your own money, Let's say you're going to Disney World and you're renting a bus and every time you bring somebody onto the bus, it costs you $200 per day. Are you going to be like, hey, everyone, come on the bus. I don't care what you do. Or are you going to be like, okay, who do I really want on this? You know, and I think that that's what I started doing. And the fact mm -hmm. that people oppose that, I don't think they're creatives. I'll just say that. I don't think you're a creative person if you followed one formula, the only formula that the film industry has ever given us. There's not more than one formula. Come on, really? Like there's just one formula out there and because you're following a formula, you're a creative? I don't think that's creative. Creative is coming up with your own formulas in a lot of ways, not exclusively, but like if you can't think out of the box even a little bit, 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're a film worker at that point. And there's there's merit, and I'm not even saying that as a, a bad thing. There's total respect for film workers. But, like, there's filmmakers and film workers, you know? The person that changes a light bulb, I don't know if you're a creative. You're not a creative until you're creating some something, you know? And that's know. something I would like to talk about is, like, I feel like when you say the word creative to the average person, they probably think like, you know, the final product, like how does that look? How does like what's in front of the camera or what's on your canvas? Like, how does that look? Like how do you use color and stuff like that? But I feel like the real creative people are the ones that do the best behind the camera and the stuff that you don't see. And I feel like you like, yeah, uh, that's like your philosophy behind filmmaking. Yeah, I think the process is just as important as the final product. Mm. I think that that's like a, a, I think that's with everything. How are you treating people along the way? What are you doing? Like, if some if it starts raining, if something happens, if something breaks, how are you treating people when the camera breaks? How are you treating people when something happens? How are you still pursuing your objective goal as a filmmaker in the story you're trying to tell when the sun went down? Can mm-hmm. you still tell that story? with the variables changing. And I think that that's the best basketball players are the ones that have a variable change and then they figure out a way to, to, to make that work. You know, it's like three seconds left and you have the ball and you're on the other side of the court. That's a good basketball player. Anyone could shoot a basket if they're sitting under the thing, but the point of the game is actually having all those variables in your way and the obstacles the difference between soccer and basketball is the restrictions. Like if you're just in a void and you're just there, you're like the what if you take a person in the middle of outer space and they're just there, they don't become anything until you start putting the restrictions and if you put a basketball court or a soccer field and you put a ball in their hand and that's what that the difference between soccer and film is the restrictions. One of mm-hmm. them or the objective too. You know, so like paying attention to the objectives and stuff. I think you're probably, <laughs> that's probably not your uh, question. You're trying to that's segue. Right. To and your... like, I would, um, I would say like LeBron James and Michael Jordan, like I would say those are creative people. And like, uh, I've heard this said a million times, like Michael Jordan, he was, he was as fast as everyone else. Like, no, like there were people that were faster. There were people that could jump higher than him. There were people that could uh, like dunk better than him. But it was the way yeah. he was able to play the game like differently than everyone else. And same with yeah. LeBron James. Like, sure, he's mm-hmm. got a height advantage and he weighs more than like sure. the average NBA player. But Steph Curry, like he's a tiny dude and he's like able to zip past everyone because he's totally. creative. Yeah. And he figured out like maybe I'm not a dunker. Maybe I should work on my three point shot. Mm-hmm. Like you start being real with yourself of what restrictions you have and what you have in front of you, and you go. Maybe I shouldn't be dunking. <laughs> Maybe I should figure this out. You know, like I, I always think of the, I forgot, a Scott Allen or something like that who shot the free throw shot like the granny shot. And it was within the rules, but everyone in the MD, NBA is like, no, that's not our formula. We don't respect that. But it was still part of the rules. And that's mm-hmm. a more efficient way to do a foul shot. So like people don't want efficiency. They want what is collectively accepted. And that happens with every domain. What's funny is I've been looking up, I've been learning how to do blacksmithing. And like uh, um, an anvil, 
you could get a $10,000 anvil and you could get a $30 anvil. And there's people within the anvil industry or blacksmithing that are like, oh, you don't have a forged anvil. And no, you know, you should. And then there's other people that are like, hey, you should just use a, a railroad tie. And that's you know, some are like, do what you got to do. You just need a hard piece of metal to bang stuff on. But like other people are like, you need a forged anvil if you're ever going to be respectful as a blacksmith. And what's funny is that's in every single domain. There are people that are like, you need this camera. You need this. You need these pair of shoes. You need Nikes. You need these skateboards. You need these shoes. And it's just like, get out of here. Like all that stuff is just go make, go skateboard, go play basketball. It doesn't matter what all the stuff, you know, like it does matter. But you, if you realize, okay, for I'm making jewelry, I don't need a $10,000 forged anvil. I need a, a railroad tie, you know, mm-hmm. like you just figure out like, what is the purpose of the thing? So with a camera, it's like, well, what, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to do like a 6k footage or am I trying to make a YouTube video? If a YouTube video, maybe I don't need a, a Aerie Alexa or a, you know, like a, a red weapon. Maybe I just need a A7S or whatever it is, you know? You and so, I had a conversation a few months ago about the beauty of limitations. And we brought up like vine, like, vine uh, i feel like was so much better whenever it came out uh not mm-hmm. because i'm like being a boomer about it but like it was just like literally all it was was your camera and how many times you could like hit the button to record and that was so beautiful and then they integrated like uploading and i think that's what ruined it and i feel like oh. that's what kicked the ladder is too is mm-hmm. um how many people have come up to you and have complained about the rules or the limitations like uh like there's one rule you can only use your phone and a lot of mm-hmm. people i've heard complain about that like yeah. no i got a freaking ari alexa that i want right. to use like yeah. why would i want to use my phone and what do you say to those people then go make a film without your phone like you don't have to show it here the thing is is like if you want to make a film that premieres at sundance you got to make it political and and see really like hit what sun is trying to do but if you're trying to show something at leg day you got to follow those rules and that's with the case of any film festival or any premiere or anything like that i'm not if you own a great camera and i say hey you have to shoot this with your phone and you're like oh well i can't and it's like well go make a film like what's stopping you i'm not stopping you from making a film i'm stopping you from showing a film shot on a red at the Mm -hmm. cell phone day because it's like, yeah, like I, I think people just don't get it. It's it's kind of like people are like, if you go to a freestyle rap battle and say, okay, we're going to rap about corn on the cob. And then it's like, well, I don't want to rap about corn on the cob. I want to <laughs> rap about this. And it's like, well, go rap about that. Go, just you're not here. Don't go. Like the reason that the audience is here in the first place and the reason that everyone here in the audience is interested is because mm. all of us are curious of what, humans could do with those limitations mm-hmm. that's what people are interested in and if we know what the objective is as an audience it's very it's way more interesting to us so we go oh it's cell phone night i want to see what all these veteran filmmakers are doing with their cell phone because if you could it that's i really think like anyone could make a good shot with a area or a red Sure, mm-hmm. like you could pull it out of the box and just turn it on. And even if you shoot it wrong, you could edit it in post because it's raw. 
you show me what you shot with a cell phone and if it's like then i really could see oh he understands lighting he understands dynamic range he understands framing he understands story he understands the language and storytelling through film that's interesting to me like people have complained about you know it's a one minute long and it's like okay well i'm not stopping you from making your two minute film or your five minute film go ahead and do it there's a billion platforms you want to upload on youtube on vimeo on godtube or whatever the heck i don't care world star you could work like nobody's stopping you youtube's not stopping you from when i started youtube you had a 10 megabyte limit then it went to a 100 megabyte limit and it was 10 10 minutes long you had to be a, a part of the pro partner program a director and sign up and stuff to get over 10 minutes that's what youtube was so like yeah people figured it out people figured out i remember watching tons of videos how to render the best quality for a 10 megabyte upload or whatever because people were trying to figure out how to make it look good you know and that's why the really real shows look like garbage is because like it's just like we had a limitation i think by that time it was like 100 megabytes if I had a dollar it's- for every pixel in the really real show i'd have 50 cents <laughs> <laughs> Is that a top comment or something? <laughs> no, I just. <laughs> yeah, you said I used that to last work at an IT. Roaring. <laughs> I used to work at an IT firm, and I heard that, and I was like, "That is so funny." That's great. So anytime I see a low quality video, yeah, uh, I I have to say it. It's so funny. Yeah, it is funny. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so. We've mentioned your feature film a couple times throughout this conversation. So uh, just to not keep everyone guessing, like what exactly is it? And you gave me some good news before it started too. Oh yeah. So uh, what is it like, what is it about or what is the. Yeah. So the film is called a student teacher. And uh, it's a, you know, I'll just let Isaac explain it. I'm not going to explain it. Um, So it's a, it's a darker film, but it's a, uh, it's a film about a high school teacher who struggles with underage pornography. And then he recognizes one of the students from his classroom in the videos that he's watching and all the evidence he has to save her from her abuse is self-incriminating. So he has to figure that out essentially. So it's that journey. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm literally doing, I had to tweak the credits and then just rendering it and just going to be done tonight. So pretty excited about that. That's awesome, that. man. I'm like at the 55 minute point of just doing like cleanup of audio. It's not going to be the best sounding film in the world, but ran out of money. <laughs> so I'm just trying to make it not distracting is the goal. So, so when did you, uh, What? Uh, how long ago was it that you wrapped on production? Uh, 2017 was the principal photography. And then 2018, I did a pickup shot or a pickup scene. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of reshot a scene. Um, and then just been kind of slowly editing it and kind of, pe- I've been co-editing it with a friend of mine and we've been passing it back and forth. And then uh, the last few months I've been just kind of tweaking and tweaking and um, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's weird, man. Like I've wanted to make a feature film since I was like 10 years old and or actually before I even got my first camera, I was talking about making a feature film. So I was like eight or nine. And um, it's weird because when you wanted to do it for 20 years, there's some sort of like, 
a weird like depression that happens when you're done because imagine wanting to do like you know like go to disney world for 20 years so then you go and you had 20 years to think about what it would be like when you finally win or 20 years to think about what and you finally are done and you almost don't know what to do with yourself like sure i want to make more uh, features and i want to keep making films but you start kind of and i've actually talked to a lot of first-time feature film directors and they said that it went through the same thing and there's a certain point of like letting go and finally just being like i need to just be done with this because I've started writing like in 2015, mm-hmm. like, and I had this idea for 10 years. And so it's been like a really crazy psychological journey. Um, and it really changed who I am as a person. And I highly recommend people pursuing any of their goals. Um, and if they don't have one, I'd suggest making a feature film because it really changes you. But, um, um, I know you weren't asking that, but uh, I no, dude, that's it's fine. been a yeah, it's been a um, really cool process. I learned a ton. I'm really glad I did it. Uh, I've always said that making this film was the goal of making this film is to learn how to make a feature. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I totally got that goal. And I think because of that is why I was able to make Kick the Ladder because kick the ladder if you look at all the rules it's very much preparing you for all the variables and all the things that would come up with making a feature film so like mm-hmm. having to get a shot with a clock in it at 11:48 means you have to really plan and get ready for that shot those things happen on a film set uh you know like all handheld because you're running out of time uh limited crew limited actors uh, limited dialogue if your audio breaks and you have to just still tell the story so like playing kick the ladder after a while would prep somebody to be able to do a feature a little bit easier um and it was because of making my feature that i was able to implement all those rules in because of all the things i learned and what i actually found out to be really important about making a feature um so um, and you, i remember one night you uh I think it was the 1148 rule. You showed a film whenever the eclipse happened uh, here in the South yeah. and you got a shot. Like you, you made a film during that eclipse. Oh, every, that wasn't me. That, was, was just, that wasn't, that wasn't you. Okay. I'm sorry. I yeah. thought it was. You. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I did make a joke after cause it's such a good film. And at the end uh-huh. I was like, man, that was really hard to make. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so sorry about that. It's called souls of totality. I think mm-hmm. it is. But look it up. It's on Vimeo and it's so good. And they had, it was literally during the eclipse and they got the mm-hmm. shot where the sun gets blocked off and it's a one take and it's so well done. It's so well timed and it's amazing. And so when people figure out like storytelling in that way, where it's like, let's get this whole scene when this plane's flying over us, or let's mm-hmm. get this whole scene when this when the new year's eve ball is dropping or whatever it is like those sorts of things are like the magic that comes out out of that is so cool um and that is stuff that's happened in the past of my career like just making a film with like a train going by and it's like okay we got to film this go 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 and like those sorts of things that kind of give that magic of uh filmmaking which i love about filmmaking so Mm -hmm. um but yeah that's a really good film but yeah similar thing uh, yeah 
And I'm I'm really sorry. I thought it was you for some reason. I, I guess I forgot you said. By the That's way, I didn't make compliment. that. <laughs> huge compliment. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I wish you. You're me. a great filmmaker. Well, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, we've been fil- or we've been going for a little over an hour. Uh, Isaac, like, thank you so much for coming on. And yeah. I think I want to wrap this up with uh. So I wanted you to. You've been making these little inventions for filmmaking. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of wanted to bring it up when we were talking about being creative behind the camera as much oh, as in right, front. Yeah. So uh, would you mind doing a little show and tell real quick? Yeah. Uh, let me grab them real quick. I'll be real, real quick. Okay, cool. What's going on, everybody? you got to wait for Isaac to come all the way back. It's going to take him like five minutes, and I hope you're still watching. You're not going to tune out. Whoa. Okay. What is that? That's the Clive cart I'm working on. This cool. one here, I, I'm actually using my phone as my hotspot because Xfinity is using COVID as an excuse to not give us good Wi-Fi. Um, oh, my gosh. So this here I call the Cardellini cam, which mm. is using a Cardellini cam- clamp and a macro tube to project on a diffusion paper. Um, and what you do is you clamp your phone right here and then the phone uh, screen goes into this, which Whoa. is a viewfinder that is projected. This viewfinder is from a camera, like a, a video camera. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's focused onto the the diffusion paper that's uh, the lens is projecting onto that. And so that kind of gives, this was created for the restriction on kick the ladder was using a cell phone. So I was like, well, it's using a cell phone, so let me try and figure out a cool way to make a cell phone look cool. So that's that. I'm currently using my camera uh, my camera for this live podcast, so I can't really show this. This is what I call the gadget cam. So the camera will sit here, and uh, this uh, spring is on the the camera, so... It goes like this. You could see this on my YouTube as I demonstrate this better. But you have a flashlight. Everybody go check that out. You have a flashlight that will shine into the lens. Mm-hmm. You have a prism that comes down. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> it's a prototype. <laughs> um, you have a, a prism that comes down and it goes into the lens, which has a cool look. And then you have this, which will um, take the... Uh, the lens and free lens it. Hold on. Oh man, he's gone again. So this lens is attached to the camera mm-hmm. on a hinge. And so this is attached to the bottom. And then that that trigger will move the lens and uh, let light in and make it go out of focus and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Within all that, it's just kind of makes it really cool. Um, so that's, I shot probably one of my favorite shot in my whole career the other wow. day with that thing. It was really cool. Uh, was it the one with John Selden? Uh, no, it, I went okay. downtown um, with Audrey, uh, my fiance, and we just sh- shot around downtown. And it was really cool. Um, I can't wait so to see it. 
that. And then uh, this is the Clive cart, but I don't know if you had time for that one. Um, no, you... like we can talk for as long as I, I guess I just kind of like it in the hour range. But dude, this yeah, is like that. this is good stuff. So keep going. People, people probably turning it off at anyhow if they're not. So um, <laughs> let me um, let me switch the audio. Yeah, if people are bored, they could turn it off at this point. So let me change the audio here. Um, it might get feedbacky. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hello? Okay. I can hear you. Sweet. So I'm making a video right now. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So this is mm. uh, the video. This is the solo filmmaking, basically. Whoa. It's really kind of tough to see. Let me see. Let me see if I could kind of. So this actually is cool. This is one of them that I made, which first is moment, how I yes. did the podcast. And this is a cigar box with a monitor mm. here. And then this is a two-way mirror that has a little spot for a hole. And so the whole time I was looking at the mirror, but it was actually like looking at the lens. So this is mm. my like podcasting camera setup that's awesome um and then i used the old like uh thing so i could use this and slide it around um so yeah so this here is the clive car basically you have everything you need to make a film with this you have your audio so this has an h6 on a magnet i don't know if you can see that so you have an h6 on a magnet can you see that yeah, that's okay. awesome. So H6 right here, you have your microphone on on this. This clamps, and you can take it off. And I could actually, like, set this, like, next to the actor on the table or whatever. I have a magnetized little box here, which has all my audio stuff, so I could actually take the H6 and go aux into the H6 from my camera or from the H6 into the camera. So that's a little magnetized little Pelican sort of thing here. That goes here. We So we got audio. We have a little tripod here or like a little uh, tripod head here. So I could put a camera on this, set up the settings. I have the... Um, the, the quick release plate, which is the same as this, which is the monopod. You got a monopod. That's cool. Um, this light here, dang it, uh, it needs a new battery because I've been burning it. Um, but yeah, you can turn on this light here, which is a C stand. And this goes up pretty high. Uh, so you have a light that you could put anywhere. You have on That's the so back. Rad. Back you have color coded lenses. So if somebody's helping out, you could say, "Hey, hand me the red lens or the green lens, uh, the fifty millimeter lens or the yellow, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and the gray lens." So you have color coded lenses and cup holders. Um, you have a Leatherman here, so like a multi tool. Um, you have your 
uh, your A clamps here. And then you have the smaller ones here. So you have four of each. Um, then you have a little plug here. And so with the plug, let's see here. So the plug is attached to battery chargers. So you have the battery chargers here. Um, they're, so you could have the A7S on it. Um, and those are permanently on there. So when you're plugged in, it's charging your batteries. Nice. I have a little um, shot bag here. So this is a um, shot bag, which is not sandbag. It's all lead. So this is a 35-pound, basically a sandbag. So it's very sturdy once you're set up. You actually have it very sturdy for the C-stand here. Um, you have a bungee cord. Then you have, here is one of my favorite things. Here you have a little um, little laser pointer. So I could use it for uh, directing and saying, hey, stand there and move that to here. So I have that slid in there. That's um, cool. I have a little magnetized uh, marker for an actor. So I could set mm -hmm. this on the ground. And when I'm done, it could just magnetize to the cart. Um, so convenient. Then I have an Apple box here attached on. Let's see here. Let me try and... Can you see that? Oops. Yeah, I can see it pretty well. Yeah, so, so you have your box. Apple box, regular Apple box. And then I have a baby pin here. So I could easily take off this light and baby pin it onto here. I have a, a basic extension cord that I could spin here to release. So that attaches pretty nicely onto that. So I could set this on the ground, have the light on the ground there. I have my camera bag here. Mm -hmm. um, I have a soft box for the light. I have duvetine here. So these are two different um, black stuff to cover up a window. Um, this is a window size, standard window size, and maybe a little smaller to make a flag or whatever. Um, I have a scuba diving sandbag, which is a small little weight bag, like three, three pounds. What's mm -hmm. great is I actually could use this to prop up the camera, like right there. So now it's more stable cool. and it's a small little bag, which I really love. What's cool here, let me actually get a battery real quick. Oh man, I'm all alone again. <laughs> What's that? I said I'm all alone again. Oh yeah. <laughs> so here, so here the 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 light turns on, right? So. Uh -huh. So this is not plugged into the wall. This is on a battery. Um. So you have also your gaff tape. You have a light, just a practical, like a little light bulb. I have a CRLS, which is a reflective light system. Um, so I have that, then I have 
big ones too. Mm -hmm. So I have, you can see how it's like kind of set up in there. That's cool. Um, I'd love for someone to tune in right now to be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's really cool. So I'm going to use this sandbag. The the um, So I have the light here. You can probably see it better now, huh? Yeah. Um, so what's cool is I also have a little arm here for the reflector. So that's, I could set rad. this up. Whoa. I could set this up to do a little reflection thing if I needed to. And then I could easily do a softbox on the light as well uh, if I wanted to. And then, of course, like I said, you could easily do this. I actually filmed a, a few short films so far with this, and I've been really happy with it because what I've been doing is you could put the camera on this and slide this, and it looks like a dolly, like if it's a carpet. Nice. So I've done some shots where it looks really cool, like where you'd think I had a dolly on set. But So I, I'm trying to build it where essentially I can make a feature film with just this cart. Mm -hmm. And so that's like kind of the goal here. So how much do one of those go for? <laughs> well, the idea is I would love to kind of set up the format here so that way other filmmakers make their own version. Because mm -hmm. the next thing I want to do is a music video version that will have like Bluetooth speakers on it, uh, like a, maybe a laptop or an iPad for like playback and being able to like scroll through the song or play it in slow motion or do in and out points um, and a few other things. So you could kind of modify it to your own thing. So I'm calling it the Clive cart and I would love filmmakers to start making their own. And then maybe if we could, like if more people are making their own, then they could be like, Hey, this is my version of the Clive cart. It's this is with this feature. And the reason I use this instead of this, because these fit all my needs, but I think that each filmmaker has different needs and each mm -hmm. filmmaker goes out, like wants certain things when they make a film. So this has everything I need to make a good film. Uh, and so I think that, and it has a few limitations, but I think that that's kind of the point. And you are already, I've been using it and, um, getting really creative with what's on it and going, I wonder if I could use this to do this. And maybe I could use this duvetine to slide the camera on a wooden floor. So I put the camera on this, or I put the apple box on this and I slide this. And then that makes a dolly shot. Um, so it has everything you need, your clamps, your magnets, your 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 multi-tools, your bungees. Oh, and then the, uh, another thing, which is my, one of the rules of it is everything needs two purposes. So this is also an apple box. It's a pancake apple box. And when it's not being used, it's actually just making the floor, uh, the base a lot more wider so you can put anything on there. And it takes very little time to tear down. Um, so, you know, you got these and then you could like literally snap it in. And then you have your, nice. you know, you can kind of pretty much go. And it's it's been so fun and so easy to make stuff 
Um, and then also audio, once it's pumping in, you have the H6 pumping into the camera directly. Mm -hmm. And if you're recording on both, sometimes the audio is great enough where you don't even need to source the H6 SD card. But sometimes when you do, it makes the Premiere syncing like happen like this quickly because you have your camera having a good quality sound or a good scratch audio along with the thing. So you don't even need a slate. I've synced a whole short film in like three seconds with no slate at all because I was pumping good audio into the camera and it was already synced with the H6. And mm -hmm. so if I put the SD card underneath it, it synced like really quickly. So it's actually been really fun. It's very liberating. And what's really cool is this audio is um, very portable. So, I mean, I just took this off. This is on a magnet, so I could literally like snap it onto like a thing. And then I have a microphone to play with and set down and stuff like that. So that's- I'd love to I go to a festival. I'd love to go to a festival with uh, a, where you uh, submitted a film you shot that with and somebody raises their hand, they're like, what'd you shoot that on? And you're like, <laughs> yeah, well. <yeah. laughs> yeah, yeah. If I have the gadget cam and the Clive cart, like just kind of, <laughs> well, it'd be really cool to just go to a film festival and have people, whoever made this to be like making mm -hmm. a film. And it says, these are all the actors. And then here's my credit, <laughs> like everything else. <laughs> so it's like actors, everything else, Trevor Hancock, <laughs> you know, like audio, sound, lighting, because you can totally do it. Like it's so possible. And so I think things like this, I'm totally down to do commission. Like if somebody said I had $500 or $1,000 to make a Clive car, I would love to start doing this as a side hustle. Um, because I think I can make a lot of really cool inventions for filmmakers to liberate filmmakers if they have a specific objective or a certain goal that it's like, every time I make a film, I just wish that this did this. Then I'm like, cool, well, let me figure out how to make that. And that's why I've been getting into woodworking and blacksmithing and stuff like that. So I could combine those kind of mediums into filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what this is. And so what's really cool is none of this is taped together. This is very solid. This is like, none of it's taped on. You could drop this down the stairs and everything will be safe pretty much besides like whatever hits the stairs directly but everything's like really on here it's where you have to like pull it off and like the solid it's just really solid so feels really That's good cool. you can roll it up and down the stairs and this gets way brighter so it's like it's crazy and i'm half my lens at like a completely stopped down so it's at 16. so this is like it's pretty bright open. Yeah, it's it's pretty bright. Jeez. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So we got a we got a few comments. Uh Isaac. Chase said you're yeah. the Martha Stewart of camera tools. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Alex Fam said uh the modern Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Martha Stewart and Frankenstein, I guess. Yeah, which one are you more Martha proud of? Stewart is such a funny <laughs> reference. There's so many other things to reference in <laughs> that's why i was a little i was like what are you talking about Jay? oh yeah i love that <laughs> yep so i guess i wasn't looking at the comments i didn't click that tab so i should look at that yeah we've but, got quite a few um i've gone through a couple of them but some of them are just comments not questions yeah like cool shirt trevor stuff like that <laughs> definitely cool shirt 
but yeah, Isaac, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, dude. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add or say before we close? Um, we're going to do leg day global soon enough. I'm waiting for a pen. Um, the kickbladder.com is in my possession, but I have to mm-hmm. wait like 60 days for me even to build on the site. So once the site is built, uh, I'm trying to figure, I ordered a FM transmitter that goes like three miles, very loud. So I want to do a leg day drive in and also probably do like a live broadcast of leg day. Um, and That'd then cool. it'll probably be like the people in person, We'll show their films, but I'll probably do like one to three international films as well and show Mm -hmm. that on the live medium. And I think once I start doing that, then Kick the Ladder will have a lot of other um, like global submissions of people making it from wherever they are in the world. They could go, hey, I'm going to make a film and some some weird group in Atlanta is going to show it Um, and they're going to show it and comment on it and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a fun way to like kind of broaden our um, uh, like community in a certain way. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, These are all things I actually had in mind before the whole quarantine COVID thing, but these are kind of expediting that. So the last few months or the last month, I've just been kind of getting all my affairs in order and kind of getting all my finances and films and projects just all finalized. So I could really go hard with like uh, kick the ladder and leg day stuff and trying to figure out like a live uh, medium of, of that. So um, that's what's next. Um, and I've been recently embracing like film inventing and, and inventing things that help filmmakers. And I've realized that kick the ladder is one of those things and all these different gadget cam and live cam and um, Cardellini cam are like different inventions. And I have so many more ideas and I've been really enjoying embracing that. So hopefully liberating more filmmakers to just be like, just use what you got, just make it look cool, you know? So um, I'm totally down to do that as a side hustle. If anyone wants something specific, I would love to make that. That would be really cool to have like my first gig doing that. I would even do it at cost if just expensive or just um, uh, whatever the the equipment is or the little gear that I need to buy. Um, But yeah, I think that'd be really fun. So awesome. Yeah. Well, Isaac, this was fun, dude. I, um, I yeah. feel like I was just hanging out with you. Like, I know, um, right? this wasn't Finally. super official. Like this is really how Isaac talks. Like when you hang out, with him. it's, <laughs> yeah. it's really no different. You just, all you had to say is film. And then yeah, I could, yeah. I should just uh, host like a caveman next time I, I have Isaac <laughs> on my show. I'll just go film creative camera. <laughs> <laughs> just let it's you go off. Good. Yeah. conspiracy theory we didn't get yeah. into that though. <laughs> we didn't even catch those <laughs> no maybe next time but yeah, thank you yeah, isaac yeah. uh if i had a yeah. sound effect thank thing you. i'd play a huge applause but thank you yeah. so much bye everyone yeah it's been fun watching your stuff it's cool to see what all my friends are doing so i get to, if i'm curious <laughs> with all my friends are doing, i just watch your podcast <laughs> thanks so i'll have the whole cool. leg day community on here one day yeah 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 perfect i love it cool all well, right, thanks see you, for man. doing it you're doing great man i love it Dude, thank you so much. That means so much. Oh, man, I'm all alone again. (laughs) What's that?